0: Do you consider yourself a sensitive person? You might feel everything deeply and find criticism, feedback, and conflict very difficult. In this episode, I chat with Melody Wilding, author of Trust Yourself on how sensitive strivers can manage their mental health in the workplace. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to the mental health and wealth show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy. And I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting home to 741 741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. I'm so excited for today's episode with Melody Wilding, who is the author of Trust Yourself, Stop Overthinking and Channel Your Emotions for Success at Work. Recently named one of Business Insider's most innovative coaches for her groundbreaking work on sensitive strivers, her clients include CEOs, C-level executives, and managers at top Fortune 500 companies such as Google, Amazon, and J.P. Morgan, among others. Melody has been featured in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and is a contributor to Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Psychology Today, and Forbes. Melody is also a licensed social worker with a master's from Columbia University and a professor of human behavior at Hunter College. I'm so excited to welcome you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I recently read your book, Trust Yourself, which I feel like was made for me. Everything that you wrote completely resonated. I felt like I was your target audience. And so for people who have yet to read it, you know, you gear the book towards sensitive strivers. So for our listeners, can you share who might be considered a sensitive striver?
1: Yes, absolutely. A sensitive striver is someone who is both highly sensitive and high achieving. So this is someone who thinks and feels everything more deeply, processes the the world and their own thoughts and emotions more deeply, and and senses those things uh, in, in other people too. So when we talk about sensitive strivers, this is about 20% of the population. And what's really fascinating is that This is not some, you know, woo-woo kind of buzzfeed personality test thing. This is a very real biological trait that is connected to about 10 different gene variants and how people who are sensitive have a trait difference that leads us to process uh, stimulus in the world around us more deeply than other people.
0: That is so fascinating. And I was so Grateful to find this out because when you are a sensitive person and you feel things so much deeper and things feel so much bigger and it takes so much more time to recover, it can feel very alienating and isolating. And knowing that it's a real thing and that it's not just this thing in your head, it's not you just being quote dramatic, you know, it's very validating. So I feel like your work is so important for people like me who. I am very high achieving and ambitious, but I'm also extremely sensitive. Um, Yeah. You know, I I do feel emotions deeper, both good and bad. And I do feel like it takes me a little bit longer to recover from things than other people. So the work that you're doing is so useful. So I just want to say thank you from me personally, because your book has been so helpful already just in the short time that I've read your work and... I think it's groundbreaking. And so congratulations on all your hard work with that.
1: I'm so glad to hear it's resonated with you because, you know, certainly I'm this personality type that I describe in the book as well. And I definitely all my life felt like an odd duck and could not figure out why I was so affected by everything that went on around me from a very young age and other people didn't seem to have that problem. Uh, they didn't seem to notice things in the way I did, or or take them as seriously or deeply. And so, yes, I I hope the book and this work is is validating for other people as well.
0: Ah, I love it. Well, because this is the mental health and wealth show, I'm curious. What are some ways that being a sensitive striver can affect someone's mental health and money?
1: Yes. So. There are a lot of ways that being a sensitive striver manifests, but particularly in regards to our mental health and our money, a few of the ways I see this come up, first and foremost, is overthinking. (laughs) Because we sensitive strivers have more... Active minds. Uh, we like to be deliberate, and a hallmark of sensitivity. Why the trait has has lasted for so long, you know, eons now, is because it was a biological advantage, an evolutionary advantage, to have people in the group that paused before acting, who took a breath and observed the surroundings before running out into dangerous situations, and so. When it comes to our mental health and our wealth, that can sometimes look like overthinking decisions, really deliberating over even a small expense for so long. I I have had clients tell me that they will make huge, elaborate spreadsheets about a blender that they they need to buy, and they're trying to pick the exact right (laughs) one, and they will overthink it till... yeah you know, till the cows come home. And so that type of overthinking, or even I I know we'll talk more about this, but the self-criticism that comes along with it too, of being a sensitive striver, um, judging yourself harshly, feeling like maybe you made financial mistakes or comparison to your, your peers, feeling like whatever you're doing is not good enough and you are lesser than, than other people.
0: That is so helpful. And when you were talking about overthinking, I really think that we get into the danger zone with overthinking that can, it can really turn to obsession. And I was thinking of my personal debt payoff story. And, you know, a lot of people who have been following me for a long time know that I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt. I started my blog, Dear Debt, which led to my book, Dear Debt. And I encourage everyone to pay off debt. I think the mental health benefits and the wealth benefits are incredible, but I wouldn't give the same advice to people today, you know, the same thing that I did, right? Like I I did become obsessed about it in a way and to, to an unhealthy level of focusing on the numbers and being so hypercritical of myself and just, mm-hmm. you know, it took over my mind. And so I definitely think the overthinking can lead to obsession. And then the self-judgment and the self-critical, you know, nature of being sensitive, like, you definitely triggered a memory for me of being in therapy. And my therapist, you know, stops me and she's like, do you hear yourself? And I was like, what? And I she had me repeat back what I said. And she was like, you're so negative against yourself. Like just your negative self-talk takes over. And I think sometimes we feel like that's just the way we're wired or that's just the way we think. And it takes really an outside force to remind us, oh, wow. I can change this. I can think differently. And maybe this way of thinking and reacting is no longer serving me. And for me, you know, that Mm -hmm. took a lot of work and therapy, a lot of help just to even realize that was my pattern, you know?
1: Mm. 100%. And what's so interesting about sensitive strivers is that they are we tend to be the person that is the champion and the cheerleader for everyone else. (laughs) We are, we are so kind and encouraging to other people,
0: yet we have trouble turning that on ourselves. Exactly. I remember my therapist thinking, you know, would you say that to your best friend? And I'm like, no. Mm -hmm. She's like, then why would you speak to yourself that way? And it's like, oh, yeah, like I am supposed to love myself and I am supposed to be kind to myself. But it's so hard. And actually, something that I wanted to share with you is I'm so glad you named the book Trust Yourself because I've been on this self-love journey for the past few years in therapy. And just the concept of self-love is very difficult for me and then just in this past year I've really had this realization that I think I need to replace self-love with self-trust because that's really what's going to help me be confident in the fact that I can take care of myself that I can do things and so you know having your book named trust yourself is just like ah, yes this feels like the right time at the right place perfect content for me and my journey as well and so once again I wanted to thank you and all the work that you're doing and so moving on to the next question you know in your book you mention how sensitivity can be a strength in the workplace but for many people emotions can just simply take over what are some grounding techniques people can use if they're feeling hijacked by their emotions i know for a lot of women in particular they don't want to cry at work they don't want to lash out they don't want to have that intense embarrassment and and shame when it feels like they're very activated and they can't calm down. Yes. Yes. Activated is the perfect word
1: for it because the reason why sensitive people have larger uh, emotional reactions is because we have more finely tuned central nervous systems. So we tend to be overwhelmed more easily. If there's more stimulus around us, we, we shoot from one to 10 more quickly than the average person. And so that that's why we have bigger, more complex emotional reactions than other people uh, is because we, we feel those things and process them more deeply, which you're right, can show up in the form of, of tears for many people. And my clients often come to me asking, you know, how do I stop crying when I get feedback or in a meeting when, when somebody says something difficult to me? So you also used a great word, which is grounding. And really what this comes down to is learning to manage that nervous system response. Since a big mistake I see many people make is that they try to start managing their emotions through managing their mind. And that's not where we want to start. Managing your emotions needs to start through managing your physiology so that you can manage your psychology. Because for sensitive people, first you have to get that nervous system fear, fight or flight reaction under control before you can access the cognitive component, your your thoughts that you're having about it. So, grounding in particular is is any type of uh, exercise or practice that brings down that nervous system response and helps you manage your energy and your reaction. So, grounding can look like many different things, but breathing, is a huge one. it may sound cliche, but it is often recited for a reason because it works. If you are taking deep belly breaths you are signaling to your nervous system that you are safe. If you stay in shallow chest breathing, it creates this uh, feedback loop within your nervous system that you are at risk of a threat because that's where you know if you're if you're not breathing deeply you may be running away from something, for example. So I am a big fan of box breathing, which is a breathing method that's used by the Navy Seals. Uh, It's taking four deep breaths in for a four count, holding that breath for a four count, letting it out for a four count, and holding the out breath for a four count. And there are lots of great uh, visuals and, and YouTube videos you can find online if you just Google box breathing that you can breathe along with. and you know, at first, just if you can follow one of those visuals, that's great. But over time, that type of diaphragmatic breathing can become more natural and something you can access in a difficult conversation, a meeting, for example, when you need it. So that would be one. Um, Another is doing a, a quick body scan, for example, where you're very intentionally relaxing different parts of your body. I don't know about you, Melanie, but I hold a lot of stress and tension in my hips and in my shoulders. And sometimes I will just, (laughs) yes. And sometimes I'll just notice throughout the day, like I just noticed it right now as we were talking that I was, I was kind of gripping my, my hips and my quads. And so if you can just take a moment to let those just sink into the chair and just release anything that you're holding, same thing with your shoulders. If you notice, like just bring them down from your ears and just down your chest a little bit more or down your back rather and just relax those different parts of your body. You start to relieve some of that tension that's signaling to your body that it's in danger.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I love those super actionable and tangible exercises. And I love that you mentioned really changing your physiology over your mindset first because that's something that I hadn't considered you know obviously we talk a lot about mindset here in the mental health and wealth show but in my own personal experience dealing with anxiety anxiety attacks feeling triggered and activated you're totally right that it really the only way I feel calm is to actually calm down my central nervous system first and to get that breathing more regulated to you know feel in a more calm mental state but that starts with the physiology first so that is super useful and kind of on that um, line of thinking you know for people who may be at work and they're dealing with constructive feedback you know how can sensitive strivers like me like you like anybody Mm -hmm. else listening how can we not feel like that is a personal attack because I know that I deal with this from clients from time to time where I read something and I'm like this sounds like a personal attack. And I know it's really not, it's just them trying to give feedback in a more direct way, Mm -hmm. but it's not something that I'm used to or I like. And I've, you know, trained myself over time to be like, okay, this is not a personal attack. It's not about me. They're just asking in a very direct way what they want. Mm -hmm. So, so what are some tips for that?
1: Yes, yes. And this, this is a huge challenge, right? Especially for, for those of us who love our work and, Take it so seriously. We we care about our work, which means that it's close to who we are, and we see it as an extension of ourselves. Um, and so it's natural. And and the fact that you are having an emotional reaction means you care. And so I think part of this is also reframing and reinterpreting to yourself why you're having a reaction. It's not that you are weak or you're too fragile or you can't handle this level of responsibility, but it's a sign that you care about this. And so rather than making yourself wrong for for having that reaction, having more compassion towards it immediately can sort of shift the intensity of it for yourself. So that's the first thing I would say is kind of reinterpreting why you're having this reaction. Next, there's a few different things you can do. I like to say that my golden coaching question is, what am I making this mean about me? And Mm. it's a very helpful pattern interrupt to rather than uh, going down that emotional rabbit hole of getting caught in a story about how this person hates me and they're never going to want to work with me again. And they probably think I'm an idiot. Even just checking yourself to say, wait a sec, what am I making this mean about me? And Sub question to that is: Is how true is that? How true is that? What evidence do I have of that? But even just having that pattern interrupt before you automatically spiral out can be very helpful to just have that moment of pause where you can recollect and
0: uh, assess
1: how you want to react before just automatically doing so.
0: That is so helpful. Thank you. Yeah, I love that question. I think that is a great practice for us to kind of get out of our heads and kind of put some more space between that automatic impulse to make this about me and to create this story that is in all likelihood false and you know something that's really helped me and I mean, it sounds really selfish when you think about it, but it's like, you know what? Not everything really is about me. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. That can be almost a selfish way of thinking too. Like, really? Let's not make this about me. Like, it's, it's not. And so, you know, even though it can feel like, oh my gosh, I'm being so selfish by making everything about me, I know it's a sensitive response. And then I can look back and say, you know what it's actually not about me and I don't need to make this about me. Thank goodness not everything is about me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, if I made two other two other tools for this type of situation or anything that you might be overthinking and taking a little more personally. So one is exactly what you were saying is Uh, I like to call it the rule of five, which is looking at your hand, like literally sort of grounding and concretely taking out your hand and generating five other ways of viewing the situation, five other possible explanations for what could be happening. Because oftentimes we we get so stuck on the assumptions that we have that we don't consider other perspectives. It's like our mind gets caught on a on a record track that just keeps spinning deeper and deeper into its groove. And we have to intentionally pick up that needle and move it to a different track when that serves us better. So that rule of five is is doing exactly what you said by why is this not about me? What are the other possible explanations? Maybe this person had a bad day. What What would I tell my best friend or a spouse about this situation instead? And actually go through that process of having to generate other possibilities you start to realize that your original assumption may have, you start to loosen around it. And many times my clients will say, you know, I can't even get to five different possibilities before I'm laughing at myself for even (laughs) thinking about what I considered before.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's such a beautiful exercise and definitely one that's going to help me going forward. And yeah, I think as you start to think it through of like, It could be any of these things. Yeah, you start to lose that attachment to that first initial story that you seem to be stuck on, and you see all of these possibilities. And also just this knowing that we may never know the truth and that assumptions can really hurt us as well as others. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So when I read the part... Uh, in your book about the many faces of overthinking, I felt very seen. And I know we've talked a little bit about this already, but you know, in the book, you talk about rumination and future tripping and imposter syndrome and indecision. So what are the first steps people can take to move away from overthinking and really being trapped into all of these different manifestations of it? Mm Mm-hmm yeah so even identifying the
1: different types of overthinking, as you were saying, rumination is getting caught in the in the past. What if I had done this? what if I had done that, chewing over a situation? Uh, future tripping is getting caught in the future. and those may be anxieties about what is what is upcoming deadlines or responsibilities you have. Imposter syndrome is judging yourself as not good enough or adequate enough that you are a fake or a fraud. And indecision is analysis paralysis, where you sometimes have so many choices that you can't make one decision. So even just recognizing and labeling which type you are falling into can have tremendous power because then you're more empowered to figure out a solution to that specific issue. So it might be helpful to take one of these types in particular and i think it may be useful to zoom in on imposter syndrome in particular since that that's a mm-hmm. big one probably the biggest type of overthinking that tends to plague sensitive strivers and you know with imposter syndrome one of my favorite tools for for this is naming your inner critic So giving that voice of imposter syndrome a moniker, uh, a identity that is outside of you. I have had clients who call theirs Darth Vader, Cruella DeVille, (laughs) whatever you want. It can be something silly and lighthearted. That's kind of the point here. Um, But anything that allows you to gain some sort of psychological distance from that critic so you can see it as separate from you and not the whole of who you are.
0: I love that. I think that's so fun and amazing and having a different name for, you know, this character that's kind of presenting itself as imposter syndrome can really help you get away from that particular form of overthinking. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now with imposter
1: syndrome too, a major uh, part of it and, and hallmark of it is that we have trouble internalizing our successes. With imposter syndrome, we tend to push away praise. We don't think anything we do is good enough. And so, having uh, tools and mechanisms for starting to take in and appreciate your successes is crucial. And I know, Melanie, you have probably done this with financial goals where you celebrate every little milestone along the way towards mm-hmm. a savings goal, for example. And that is what allows you to feel like, oh, my gosh, I can do this. I can I can chip away at this bigger goal and I have what it takes. And that comes to reshape your identity of who you are as I am someone who saves or I am someone who is capable of, of charging more for, for what I do, for example. And this is true for imposter syndrome in our professional lives, too. If we don't take time to acknowledge and take in those small successes, we will never feel confident because we will never feel like we have competency or skills to draw on. So one way to celebrate those wins, I love to have my clients create brag files, which is a place where you are documenting your achievements on a daily or weekly basis. I'll let you choose the frequency. But the point of your brag file is to reflect on moments that you have made yourself proud. Uh, Moments where you had a tough conversation or you uh, achieved some great milestone. Uh, the point is to make that space for reflection and to internalize what you're achieving so that you are not just focusing on all the things that you're not doing or all the ways that you're not measuring up. And this gives you a repository to come back to in those moments when you don't feel great about yourself, you can always come back to that brag file and, and remind yourself of actually how capable you are.
0: Ah, that's so amazing. And yeah, I think it's so important that we celebrate the journey along the way and focus on the positive things that we accomplish. Because yeah, if we focus our attention on that, then we can hopefully create a positive feedback loop where we're continuing to do great things that feel good and that make us feel accomplished instead of just focusing on all the ways that we're messing up and kind of overthinking and falling into patterns that are harmful for us. Yes, exactly. So something else that you mentioned in the book that I know I deal with a lot is jumping to conclusions and catastrophizing, which I know is a symptom of my anxiety. When someone is in that activated space at work in their personal life, I know we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but how can they work on trusting themselves more and get away from that jumping to conclusions or catastrophizing? Yeah.
1: And, you know, but before we get into that, it might be helpful to talk a little bit about the connection between being a sensitive striver and anxiety, since they can be closely related, but they are not necessarily one and the same. So high sensitivity and ambition, the two hallmarks of being a sensitive striver are uh, sensitivity is innate right? It, it is something that we are born with and that is brought out through our environment. So it's a bit of nature, you know, our, our natural disposition and nurture and achievement is much the same. You know, all of us are born with a, a base level of intelligence and intellect that is then either, you know, supported or not supported by our environment and our upbringing and, and privilege and all of that. So being a sensitive striver is both nature and nurture and is not in itself a mental disorder. But sensitivity and, of course, achievement, because sensitivity comes with natural overwhelm and overthinking, but also achievement can come with uh, perfectionism and be associated with burnout. So both of those qualities can leave you more susceptible to anxiety. And the way I differentiate it is that anxiety is a more pervasive, intense, uh, state, then sensitivity is alone. So you can be highly sensitive and ambitious without anxiety. And so having an anxiety disorder tends to be more chronic, persistent and pervasive. Um, so someone may have panic attacks, for example, or phobias and your anxiety specifically makes it harder to function. So it's, it, is probably detracting from your daily life and your well-being somehow. So I just wanted to differentiate that because um, it is much more common for people who are sensitive strivers to have anxiety. So there's definite overlap there. And catastrophizing is one of those things that's very common. And catastrophizing in particular is worst case scenario thinking is a client isn't answering an email. They, this is it. They're going to fire me. I'm going to end up broke and homeless on the street. So it is immediately immediately defaulting to expecting the worst. There are a few ways to deal with this. Uh, One of my favorite ways is to think about worst case, best case, most likely. So doing this sort of balanced Ooh, accounting of of what could happen. Yes. So looking at worst case, actually, what is the worst case scenario? Take it out to its logical end. So trusting yourself really comes down to believing in your own resourcefulness and resilience. And so by taking a worst case scenario out to its logical end, many times you realize, you know what, I would actually be able to survive the worst if it happened. If that client let me go, you know what, I would get back on the horse, I would contact some, some older clients or go to some networking events, and I would figure it out. Or I would be able to draw from my savings for a few months. And so that sort of self-trust that even if the worst happened, I would be okay and I would, I would know what to do and I would get by is really important to helping you feel calmer and more at ease in the moment. So that's worst case. And then consider best case. Because many times we are so locked into only considering the bad, that's how we're wired as sensitive people, is to look, be vigilant for danger, that we don't consider the counterpoint, which is that, well, this situation could go really well. And let me prepare myself for that. So worst case, best case, and then we have most likely. So that's really taking the more balanced perspective of, okay, you know what, what what will actually happen is probably between those two extremes of best and worst. So let me think through what that is. Um, So that's a really helpful way you can, you can break it down and arrive at greater equilibrium for yourself.
0: I love that. And think that's so useful. And when you do that exercise of, you know, what is the worst case scenario, we can see that, hey, it's really unlikely that that would happen. And, you know, I can fall back on my savings or I could live with my parents or I could use my credit card temporarily. Like the automatic assumption of I'm going to get fired and, you know, go hungry and homeless. Like we're not Mm -hmm. quite there yet once we do the accounting. So I really appreciate you sharing that exercise. And so I'm curious, you know, how can sensitive strivers set themselves up for success in the workplace?
1: Yeah. You know, one thing we haven't really touched on is the power of assertive communication. And I think for sensitive strivers in the workplace, this is really important because we tend to be people pleasers. (laughs) We tend to be people who go along to get along and not want to rock the boat. Or because we're only the 20%, we feel different. And we think that that's that's bad, and we don't want to ask for what we need because we don't want to be seen as difficult or creating conflict at the same time uh, that can that can set you up for failure in a number of ways. you can become resentful, for example, you can burn out because your work environment isn't a good fit for you, and it can set you up to be held back in your career because you're not considered a leader who is speaking up and using their voice and driving a vision or offering opinions. So assertive communication, hugely important for sensitive strivers. One thing I would recommend for, for everyone listening is to put together your own uh, me manual. And your me manual is like a personal user manual for you and how to work with you. So it includes things uh, about how you work and how you tick as a person and what you need to be your best in the workplace. So for example, things like, how do you like to receive feedback? When you are at your best, what does that look like? When you are at your worst, what does that look like? What's your preferred methods of communication? What are your work times? So it's really a user guide to you. And that's it's something great that you can share If you're the leader of a team, you can share it with your team, you can share it with your manager, it makes a great discussion point for, um, you know, building rapport and building a bond as a team as well, because everyone can talk about their own styles. And you can become, you know, much more well versed in that. Um, But it's just a great way to get all of that out on the table so that you don't have to feel apologetic about asking for what you need.
0: Oh, that is so brilliant. I love that idea. And yeah, really communicating what you need and the best ways to work with you and communicate with you can set everyone else for success. You know, I feel like nobody's a mind reader. So really taking that first step to communicate, here's the way I work. Here's the way I prefer to communicate can just be better for everyone. Exactly, yeah. So last question, I'd love to hear some client success stories of the people you've worked with who maybe have come to you in moments of extreme sensitivity, feeling like, you know, they're failing or they're overwhelmed. And what are some of the ways that you've helped them? (laughs) Yeah, So, you know, it's,
1: it's hard to choose because I, I am just in awe of all of the sensitive strivers who, who come to me. Um, a, A few stories come to mind. I think one in particular that I shared in the book that, that always sticks with me is I, I had a. Uh, owner of a, a co-owner of a family business come to me one time. And this was someone who he was a, um, just a wonderful, huge hearted leader, wanted the best for his team, but he, he was self-proclaimed conflict averse, uh, wanted to keep everybody happy. And because of that, he was a bit of a pushover. He didn't address, you know, important, things on the team that needed addressing. He didn't give critical feedback, corrective feedback to people. And it was starting to have a lot of consequences. There were um, some, you know, rifts with, within the team, conflicts between people on the team. They were starting to fall behind on, on orders because people weren't getting input that they needed, you know, that they, they needed to work more effectively. And so there were starting to be some real consequences for this. And, in working together, we figured out one of the biggest things holding him back was the need for approval from other people that he didn't want to upset people. He wanted to keep everyone happy because he wanted everyone to like him and approve of him. And so actually what this client came up with was an experiment and he called it the day of disinhibition. And it was it started out as just one day where he swore that he was going to trust his gut and not censor himself on anything, (laughs) on any of his, of his thoughts or opinions. Uh, he wouldn't hold himself back before making a request of someone. And so he did it. He did it for 24 hours and it was life-changing for him in just the way he he felt empowered and invigorated and confident going into all of those interactions. It was like a weight lifted off his shoulder that he wasn't, didn't have to filter everything he said before saying it. He could just do it without any, without any reservation. And he was also amazed by how other people responded, how they took action, how they respected him. It was like a night and day difference. And so he extended the day of disinhibition to more like a week uh, of disinhibition. And, um, you know, that has now created this ripple and domino effect of so many changes within the company. I I was just talking to him a day ago, a day or two ago, and he was saying that their sales have been up close to 20% this year, the, the highest sales they've ever had. And so that that just goes to show you what happens when you trust yourself, when you listen to your own intuition, and when you don't hold back.
0: That's an incredible story. And I love that, you know, really focusing on trusting your gut and being assertive. And I love how life-changing that was. And such a beautiful example of really putting in the work and then seeing the results of that work.
1: Exactly. It was such a joy and to see how it affected other people because, you know, you know, I, I like to say a few things. Number one is you teach people how to treat you, and if you are someone that always readily, you know, disregards your own boundaries or, or always says yes, then other people are not going to respect your time or your energy. You have to do that first, and so that was one major shift this client made, but. Also, he realized he was a role model for other people. The rest of the company was, was looking up to him and he was setting the tone. And that's, that's true for any of us, whether you actually are a leader or you're just a member of a team, but you are contributing to the culture and the norms and um, how everyone else on that team behaves. So make sure you're setting an example that you want other people to follow.
0: Such a good point. And thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and the wonderful tidbits and actionable advice from the book. Where can people purchase your amazing book and where can people find you? (laughs) Thank you so much. You can find the book anywhere. Books are sold, Amazon,
1: Barnes and Noble, uh, bookshop.org. And you can find me at my website,
0: melodywilding.com. Thank you so much for everything. This was such a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. The best part, it is free. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.